So King Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you that um, it can convict us, but also it can encourage us, Lord. Uh, we thank you that is active. And so we just pray now over this portion of our service that you help us to be humbled, help me to be humble before you, and to not do anything of my own strength, but to lean completely on you and on your word. And we pray that your spirit will just open hearts and minds to see the truth of your word today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so um, we are in Ephesians chapter 1 for one final Sunday. Um, so last week we wrapped up the first 14 verses, took us seven weeks to go through 14 verses, and there's just all of these glorious truths of what it means for us to be in Christ. And I love going deep into those verses, and I hope, if nothing else, you have learned that there's a lot in the Word of God, right? If you're like me, sometimes I read the Bible just because I'm supposed to, and I get through it, but you miss a lot if you go super fast. So sometimes it's good to slow down and go deeper, and sometimes it's, it's good to work through passages. Um, so that's great. And as much value as there would be in continuing at that same pace, we're not going to keep the same pace on every single passage throughout Ephesians. It would take us a few years instead of just one year. Um, so today we're in verses 15 to 23, the second half of chapter 1, and this is the only Sunday that we're going to be in this portion of Scripture. Next week we'll jump into chapter 2 for the next couple of weeks, um, well, more than that, but I'm really excited about the first part of chapter 2 because it's just this glorious picture of the gospel, and that's what we're going to get leading into Easter Sunday. But you only get one Sunday in these few verses, so no pressure on me, right? But also what that means is, you know, there's nine verses here, there was 14 in the first amount, a bit, and we took seven weeks there, so I've got to cram nine verses into one Sunday. So it's going to be pretty hefty, and we're going to move quickly, partially because I just get excited, and I have to leave myself notes like, not too fast, slow down, because I just get going, and I can't help it. And that's what my wife does for me, too. She reminds me. She's helpful in that way. But um, we are going to jump into these last passages. She's rolling her eyes at me. So why don't we um, begin by reading the scripture together? What we're going to look at today is this prayer that Paul is praying for the church in Ephesus and by extension for us as well. He's thankful to Jesus for what he has done in them, and he's also praying for them and essentially praying that, hey, everything I said in the first 14 verses, I pray that you actually get it. Because if you're like me, it takes a while for that to go deep. And it's really good for us to continue to go back and back and back. So as we look into these um, few verses today, what I'm going to do essentially is going to be a little bit teaching heavy initially because I'm going to break it up into an outline into three sections. And I get that from a commentary I read by Tony Marita, and it was this wonderful, helpful tool. And then once I saw it, I couldn't unsee it. So I want to give that away to you guys. But there's also some really heartfelt moments of looking at what does it mean to actually know Jesus. And we're going to jump into that a lot today. So let's start by reading our passage together. Hopefully I typed things correctly. There may be typos, but that's okay. So Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 and following. The word of the Lord says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the, Lord, the, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So there, at least on the screen, there's a few mis mistypes. That's all right, right? There's still grace. There's no condemnation. I get typing really fast. I got to talk really fast. That's okay. No big deal, right? Um, so whenever we're looking at this and we're breaking up into three different sections, this first section, very simply, is just on thankfulness. So what is it that Paul is thankful for in these Ephesian believers? Well, he's thankful for their faith in the Lord Jesus, and he's thankful for their love for all the saints, Two very simple things. And so I imagine for Paul, if I were in his shoes, this evidence of their faith is a very comforting thing, right? 
Um, Because if you think about it, he spent a couple of years with them. He's been pouring his heart into them. He's been speaking the truth to them, teaching them. And then he leaves, and he leaves Timothy behind to put things in order to make sure there's elders. And so he's getting word back that they have this true, genuine faith. And if I were him, I'd be like, oh, thank goodness, right? Because that's not always a guarantee. He actually writes in Galatians chapter 4 to the church in Galatia after he had left there. He said, but now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? I'm afraid that I may have labored over you in vain. It's a pretty stinging, harsh rebuke, right? Um, but that's just the reality of it. Paul, who's going on these ministry, uh, you know, missionary journeys, he's preaching, he's you know, instituting elders and churches and those sort of things. The hope is that the Holy Spirit will do the rest. Um, and of course, for Ephesians, he's heard that word probably from Timothy, so he's excited about that, but that's not always the reality. And so f- if I were Paul, I would be so thankful, right? That's what he's doing. He's praising Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that they have faith in you. Um, because it's a comforting thing for him. And of course, this is something that all pastors long for for their people, right? To be able to see that there is a genuine faith, that they do not labor in vain. So it's something I would celebrate along with Paul if I were him. And of course, along with their love for Jesus, there's this obvious indication of their faith in Jesus is their love for other saints. And so this is what Paul has heard from Timothy. Um, And so he is excited about the fact that there is both faith in Jesus and also love for other saints. So whenever we read this portion of Scripture, I think we can come to what I've given you as truth number one. So if you'd like to be a fill-in-the-blank kind of person, it's in your worship guide that's there that you can write it in. You can write it in your notes and your journals and so on and so forth. But truth number one, a Christ follower is someone who has saving faith in Jesus and someone who loves other saints. And if you remember way back from early on in Ephesians, um, Jerry gave us some, some definitions, right, of some terms. And so he described what a saint was. He said, a saint is a believer in the gospel or a follower of Jesus who, because of their faith, has been set apart and declared holy by God as the righteousness of Jesus has been imputed or given to them. So that's what a saint is. And so a true Christian is someone who has a genuine saving faith. And I don't really remember the reference, and this sounds kind of harsh, but there have been some Puritan pastors and others in the past, um, whenever they have somebody in their congregation that, that comes to faith, they would say something along the lines of, that's great, I'm glad you have saving faith, let's see a year from now, two years from now, if that is a genuine saving faith, right? And that sounds a little bit harsh, but the fact of the matter is, saving genuine faith in Jesus is a long-term faith. It's a, a lasting faith a saving faith, one that cannot be stolen away by the cares of this world um, or from persecution, as you can see in the parable of the the sower, right? Who sows the seed and some it sprouts and, and produces fruit and some of them it's stolen away by the cares of this world or it's choked up, right? So there is a difference in that faith. So a Christian has saving faith and a true Christian both has and grows in a love for other Christians, that's something that, that Jesus himself said, that if, if you are my disciples, you will have love for one another, right? And the world will know that you are my disciples by that love. So I think that's a pretty clear thing, that if you are a genuine disciple of Jesus Christ, you're going to have some love for people, other Christians specifically, and if it's only a little bit, it's going to grow over time by God's grace. And Peter, whenever he writes 2 Peter 1, 3 through 8, So I gave you the references this Sunday, but I didn't type all out because it would take forever. But in 2 Peter, he says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who has called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
That word knowledge is going to come really important as we continue through our next sections. But what I want you to just focus on in that passage there is this idea of love. And so a growing, maturing disciple of Jesus Christ will grow in their love for other saints and brotherly affection and love. So if you're a Christ follower, a genuine Christ follower, you need to ask yourself, do I have love for other Christians? And you may blanket, you know, say yes, but sometimes other Christians can be hard to love in certain moments. Um, but if you're a true, genuine follower of Jesus Christ, do I love other Christians at least as a starting point? So look around the room and ask yourself, do I love these people in this room? Do I love them even when they're going to hurt my feelings or something like that comes along, right? Because life happens. Those things happen. And does the world around me, people who are not close to Jesus around me, do they see that I love these other people in this room? Because that's something that's a, a, an amazing thing for other non-Christians to see, right? They will know us by our love for one another. So again, in this first section, is really short, really simple on thankfulness. Paul is just thankful for their faith in Jesus, this genuine saving faith. There's evidence of it. And also, he is thankful for their love for other saints, for other believers. And so that's something that we can desire for ourselves, that we should be praying for for ourselves, right? That we want to be able to see are those same two things. Now let's go ahead and look into the second section. These next two sections are much longer than the first one as we dive into this prayer that Paul is praying. So looking back at verse 16 and following. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? So whenever Paul begins to, to speak of his prayer for the Ephesian believers, um, he's saying that he never ceases to give thanks for them, right? Always remembering them in his prayers. Now for me, that's, that's personally pretty convicting, right? To see that he never ceases to pray for them. So as, as a pastor of this church, I, I do pray a lot for you guys. I try to make it a point to pray for um, the community group leaders, for the people that are on my elder list. So Jerry and I, we've divided all the members, regular tenders into two, and we're making sure that at least on a weekly basis, if not more often, that we pray for you guys by name. And so we make it a point to do that. But Paul here, he's saying that he never ceases to remember them in his prayers, right? He never ceases to pray for them. Now that's pretty strong, right? So even for me, that can be convicting. Like, wow, he is every time he has a chance to pray, he's praying for these believers. He's praying for the churches of where he has been, and he prays for them by name. If you look at all of Paul's letters, he mentions people by name regularly. So that's a personal knowing that he has with these people, and he's lifting them up in, up in prayer. So I know for me, this is something that I can grow in. This is something probably Jerry can grow in, and certainly something the church can grow in as well. Because I would ask you, like, do you find yourself praying for other believers? It's easy to pray for yourself. It's easy to pray for people in your family. But are you praying for other people that are a part of this church? Do you pray for them without ceasing? I, I, I don't, right? Without ceasing. But it's something we can grow in. And so I'm going to mention it again later on. But one thing I'd like to challenge us in, if you guys will allow me to challenge you in prayer, is to at very least pray for the people in your community group by name on at least a weekly basis. Now, if you're not in a community group, that's okay. You totally should be, and you're missing out. But if you're not, pick a few people in this church that you know and commit to praying for them by name on a weekly basis. And not just praying in general, but if you want a starting point, pray the same uh, prayer that Paul is praying for those people. And I think that could be a powerful thing to see our church body praying for one another at that intimate level. So think for them, think, be thankful for them in your life, but also pray for them the same prayer that Paul prays. And as we look at this prayer, this prayer that he's praying, it's focused on a kind of knowing. And he uses three different phrases to mention knowing. He speaks of a spirit of wisdom, revelation in the knowledge, and also having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. So in all of this prayer, he's praying for a knowing 
for the church in Ephesus. He's praying for a knowing for us. And so who or what are we supposed to know? Well, the obvious, easiest answer, of course, is to know God, right? To knowing God. But we want to get a little bit deeper into that. And so as we're praying for these things, truth number two that I have for us is that we should pray for God to help us to know him deeper. And so we're going to jump into what I mean by this. But this isn't just a surface level, knowledge level, I read my Bible today, or, oh yeah, I know who Jesus is, because a lot of people in the South are going to say that. This is a deeper, intimate knowing. So I want to look at each of these particular phrases. So when Paul prays, um, he prays for God to give them a spirit of wisdom. And he's praying for this understanding that can come from the Holy Spirit only, right? Um, this wisdom that's given to both grasp the spirit of the scriptures, but also to be able to apply those scriptures to our life, to know Jesus and know him personally and intimately. And so the truth is that you and I, we have no ability on our own to grasp and to understand God's word or to know him on our own. And this flies in the face of people who live um, with their reasoning, right? They think by their wisdom, their reasoning, their knowledge, that they can come to some sort of saving faith, or they can understand how the world works, or how it became to be. And so that because of their wisdom and their reasoning, they struggle with accepting what is required by faith, and this understanding that comes from the Holy Spirit only. In Isaiah chapter 11, the prophet prophesies of Jesus, And he says of Jesus, there will come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And so this same spirit is what resides in believers in Jesus Christ. And he helps us to have this this wisdom, this spirit of wisdom, to understand who God is, to understand him personally and intimately, to understand his word and apply it to our lives. And of course, the Proverbs, they tell us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom, the beginning of all knowledge, right? So the spirit of God is able to give us these things. And so this is the first thing that Paul prays for for the believers. The Holy Spirit will reveal to them the truth of God's Word, the truth of the first 14 verses he just gave, but also the truth of all of the teaching of the Word of God. And the second phrase, just looking at these three phrases, dealing with knowing, that Paul uses is this revelation in the knowledge of Him. So God, He is in the business of revealing Himself right? He reveals himself to us in creation. He also reveals himself to us in the word of God. It's known as special revelation. It is the word of God that reveals himself to mankind. As we just saw, it is the Holy Spirit who reveals God's word to us and helps us to make sense of it. But I want to focus a little bit more specifically on this word knowledge. What does it mean to know God? And even though the definition of knowing is really simple, right? Just having a familiarity or understanding with, I want to look a little bit more at what Scripture says. Um, This is something I actually preached on last year in March or April when we were shut down, and we were in this series on Come Follow Me, Come Follow Jesus series. I talked then also what it meant to know God. And so in the Old Testament, when it comes to knowing, just the word know, it was related to experience and relationship right? Experience and relationship. And um, if you look at different places of what that means, it also a lot of times in the Old Testament was used of speaking of an intimacy between a husband and wife. This deeper knowing that only marital intimacy can bring. Such as in Genesis 4.1 when it says, now Adam knew his wife and she conceived and bore Cain. So that's an intimate knowing, right? We understand what that means when they bore Cain, right? So that's what that word know meant a lot of times in the Old Testament was this more than just surface level, hey, nice to meet you, how are you kind of thing, right? And we can also, not only should we know God, but also he can know us. And you can look all throughout Scripture, here's different references if you'd like to write them down and look later of this. We can be confident the Lord knows those who take refuge in him, Nahum 1.7, that the good shepherd knows his sheep intimately in John 10. And even though it's more used in a negative context, we can read Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 7. 
where he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That one's used in a negative sense, but there's this word no that comes from Jesus towards us. So what does all of this tell us? It tells us that knowing Jesus is more than just a surface level, yeah, I know who Jesus is. It's more than a surface level, yeah, I read my Bible today, check it off. It's an intimate relationship with him where you walk with him, where you speak with him, and where you both know him and are known at a deep level. And so I think that's Paul's prayer here in Ephesians, that the Father may give them and give us the knowledge of him. And may God, through the Holy Spirit, help us in our weakness to know him at an intimate level, to know him at a deeper level, than we would ever be able to on our own. And so I think the most dangerous thing for any person to ever go through in this life is to spend their entire life never knowing Jesus. And the most dangerous thing for a believer is going through your entire life never knowing Jesus deeper. Let me say that again. The most dangerous thing for a person is to go through their entire life never knowing who Jesus is. And the most dangerous thing for a believer is to go through your entire life never knowing him deeper. To get to the end of your life having never known him any more than you do at the beginning of your walk with him. It's a dangerous thing. So do you hear what Paul is saying and praying for other believers? And what we can pray for one another? To know our Savior at a deep and intimate level deeper than you even know your own spouse. To walk with him, talk with him, have a relationship with him, to spend time with him, studying his word, crying out to him for help, to know him more. That's one of the most important things that you can ever do with your time here on earth. And I've quoted this before, but there's this famous theologian who, who died not too long ago. His name was J.I. Packer. And one of his most famous books that he ever wrote was a book entitled Knowing God. And so in this novel, in this book, he says, once you become aware that the main business that you are here for is to know God, then most of life's problems will fall into place of their own accord. And if you're wondering, well, how do I go about knowing God deeper? Packer also says, how can we turn our knowledge about God into a knowledge of God, this knowing Him. The rule for doing this is simple but demanding. It is that we turn each and every truth, the Scripture, each and every truth that we learn about God into a matter for meditation before God, leading to prayer and praise to God. So in order to know God deeper, you must pray that the Holy Spirit helps you to know Him deeper, right? Through His Word, you must meditate on his word, which means you're going to sit in it, you're going to pray it back to God, you're going to even memorize it. We'll talk more about meditation towards the end, but it's going to require some effort that you're not only spending time in God's word and reading it, but that you meditate on it. As you learn and are impacted by truths in the word of God, you must internalize it and take it deeper and pray that back to God. That is how you know God deeper in this life. So you read through the Word of God, you pray it back, such as the first 14 verses that we spent seven weeks on, and if you're like me, you still have to be like, okay, what was that again? What, who am I in Christ? Because it takes a while to get there. And then as you do that, you seek to live an obedient life. As you pray, seek to know God, apply His Word, pray some more, seek to know God through His Word, and just this process, this continual process of seeking to know God throughout your entire life. So don't go through your life never knowing Jesus deeper. It would be a shame to get to the end, never having spent time trying to know your Savior, to know Him intimately. And so finally, the, the third phrase is continuing through this knowing that Paul uses. 
We praise that the eyes of your heart be enlightened. I'm doing a bad job with these slides. Verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. So Paul is praying for this intimate understanding to be given to the believers. A knowledge that comes from the heart. It's deeper. And I think we can look into lots of other passages to help us to make sense of this knowledge of the heart, such as 2 Corinthians 4.6. I didn't put that up there, but that's okay. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Or Ephesians 4.18 It says they are darkened in their understanding and alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in in them due to the hardness of their heart. Or Matthew 13, 15, in reference to Isaiah 6, says, For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and with their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. So in each of these, there is this knowledge that is mentioned and this knowledge that comes from the heart. Whether it's a positive knowledge where God, through the light of Jesus Christ, shines in our hearts to make us known to that truth, or if it's more of a negative reference where that person's heart has grown cold and dull to hearing the truth. And that way they don't believe in Jesus Christ. And when I read this, I cannot help but think about those that are in my life family and friends and others who do not know God, who because of the dullness of their hearts, they don't have the eyes to see, their ears to hear in their hearts the truth of the gospel and who Jesus Christ is for them and what he has done for them. And they're incapable of accepting and they're seeking for something in this world that only Jesus Christ can satisfy. And I think we've got to pray for them. So in this prayer, he's praying for other believers. We want to pray for one another. We know Jesus intimately and have the eyes to see the truth of the Word of God. We also want to pray for those who are outside of Jesus, that they be given this same spirit of understanding that only the Holy Spirit can give, that God reveal to them the truth of who he is and what Christ has done and just the fact that that is beautiful. We want these things for other people, and I want it for them, but we can't do that for them. Only Jesus can do that for them. So we want to pray for hearts to be enlightened to the truth, to know something. And of course, that's knowing Jesus, but there's also a what that we can know in these passages. So not only should we know Jesus intimately, we also want to know the hope that he has called us to. So looking back at these few verses, having eyes of our hearts enlightened that we may know what is the hope to which he has called us. What are the riches or the glorious riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward those who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. So what is this hope that we must know for? What is this hope that Paul is praying for at the church in Ephesus and for us? So we must know the hope of an inheritance that we've been given in Jesus Christ, both our inheritance and also Christ's inheritance. Now, I know that sounds a little fuzzy, a little risky to say, perhaps, but there is almost a double inheritance in this sense. There's inheritance for us as believers. There's an inheritance for Jesus as well. And I think when we look at our inheritance, we look back at those first 14 verses in Ephesians 1, and we see what we have been given in Christ, where we are predestined for love according to the or predestined for God according to the will of his good pleasure where we grasp this inheritance that we're given inheritance in Jesus Christ where we want where we believe the gospel we're promised this inheritance and then as a first fruits of that inheritance we're given the promised holy spirit right these are the things that we are given in Christ that is our inheritance and it's a wonderful truth it's a wonderful inheritance And if you've already forgotten, then go back to those first 14 verses. Spend some time meditating on those 14 verses and looking at your inheritance in Christ. It's an amazing thing 
and one that should inspire us with hope and with peace. But I think if we look closely at this passage, we can also see this second inheritance I'm alluding to. It says that you may know as the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. So if I could take a second, go back to that early grammar lesson that we kind of mentioned last week and your other time in, in, in early elementary and middle school grammar, and you look at the word his, his is a possessive pronoun, right? And possession is showing relationship or ownership. So whose inheritance is it mentioning? It's mentioning his inheritance, Christ's inheritance. And so just to help us to better grasp what this is and what I mean, let's look at a couple of passages. Um, I, re I referenced this last week, but in John chapter 6, 37 and following, Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given to me but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. And also in Philippians chapter 2, 5-11, through 11, a beautiful picture that I love. It says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though He, Jesus, was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and on earth and every tongue confess in heaven and on earth, or sorry, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Wow. So these two passages, they're saying that, that God has chosen to lift up and to glorify the Son for what he has done. And he's given Jesus a place of honor that is above all other names. And God has chosen a people, which does include you and me as believers, as an inheritance for himself. Isn't that amazing? That God places value on us, not because of who we are, not because of what we have done, but because of what Christ has done, because we have been adopted, because we are in Christ, and we are an inheritance for Jesus. He receives an inheritance for those who believed in him, purchased by his blood. And Jesus has been given a name that is above every name, so that we all bow and confess that Christ Jesus is Lord. This is what Jesus gets, right? He gets a people who confess that he is Lord. And there are lots of Old Testament passages that also reference this inheritance of God. You can look at Deuteronomy 32.9, Psalm 33.12, Psalm 2.8, Isaiah 19.25. And in each of these, it's speaking of Israel as God's inheritance, right? And then we as believers, we're also this inheritance of God, of Jesus. So that means that God sees us as valuable because of what Christ has done. So when we want to know this hope that we've been called to, this glorious inheritance, we want to know the hope that is our inheritance in Jesus. And we also want to know this supreme value of the inheritance that Jesus Christ gets of a people that God has given to him and that we can never be taken away from him. And we will all bow before him and confess him as Lord. This is a glorious truth for us to behold. And this is what we hope for, this inheritance. And this inheritance that we have in Christ Jesus is made possible only because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. See, that's what it says when it mentions the immeasurable greatness of his power towards those who believe according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. So God's power, this immeasurable power, meaning that we have no way of ever comprehending this all-consuming, never-running-out, always-in-excess power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And this same power that raised Christ from the dead lives in believers and will raise you and me too. Do you believe it? Do you believe in the resurrection and what it means for you and for other believers? 
This is exactly what Romans 8.11 says. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So this is the promise that we have. This faith that we have in, in this inheritance is a faith in the resurrection. And it rests completely on Christ's resurrection. Because if Christ wasn't resurrected, then you and I won't be. And we are most to be pitied, Paul says, right? In 1 Corinthians, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith is in vain. And later he says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And you are still in your sins then those of us who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are all, above all people, most to be pitied. So truth number three, the resurrection of Jesus Christ changes everything. The resurrection of Jesus Christ changes everything, because if Jesus Christ wasn't raised, then neither you and I raised, or will be raised. And so this is why we celebrate Easter. When we celebrate Easter, we're celebrating not only his death and resurrection on the cross, where he took our sin and our shame upon him, and his blood covered us, and he has given us his righteousness. All of those are wonderful, beautiful things that we have to have. That is the truth of the gospel. We also celebrate Easter because Christ was raised from the dead. We, We praise a risen Savior. He's no longer dead. He's no longer in the grave. He is risen. And not only is he risen, but he is seated at the right hand of the Father in power, and he intercedes for us and he mediates for us between God and ourselves. We celebrate a resurrected Savior. And so because of the truth that he has raised, you and I, we can face anything that this life throws at us. When something in life happens that's really hard, we have hope in our inheritance, hope in the resurrection because of Jesus Christ. When another believer dies, we have hope that we will see them again because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the resurrection of the saints. So anything in this life cannot deter the hope that we have in this passage that is being spoken to. So may the hearts, or may the eyes of your hearts be enlightened so that you may know what is His glorious inheritance in the saints, the immeasurable unknowable greatness of God's power which raised Christ Jesus from the dead with which he will raise all believers from the dead to live with him in eternity. And again, this is not some ethereal, like, we're going to be floating in the clouds kind of resurrection, right? That sounds kind of sad if you think about like the old cartoonish version of what it means to be in heaven. No, we will be given new bodies to be with him in the new creation. He will one day raise us. So then, it says in 2 Corinthians, so then we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction, the things that happen to us in this life, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not only to the things that are seen, but to things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. They are temporary. But the things that are unseen are eternal. So the question is, do you believe it, church? Not only do you say that you believe it, but do you believe it in your hearts? You may have to pray and ask that the Holy Spirit will help the eyes of your hearts to be enlightened, to know this glorious truth, to know it at a deep level, to the point that it changes everything in this life. This is the truth of God's Word. It's a glorious truth. Do you have eyes to see it? I want you to believe it. I want myself to believe it at a deep level but we need the help of the Holy Spirit to get there. That's what Paul is praying for. This is what I pray for you guys. This is what we should pray for one another, that we have this intimate knowledge of who Jesus is and the hope that he has called us to. He's a good father that gives good gifts, and you pray and you ask him to give you an understanding and a knowledge of him, an understanding and the knowledge of this hope. He will give it to you through the Holy Spirit because he cares for his children. See, I told you the second part of this was going to be a lot longer than the first. So this is a glorious prayer, and we're not quite done. So as we head into section three of this little passage for us, we're going to look at both God's power and Christ's victory. So as we come to the end of this, let's look further into Christ's resurrection as victory over sin and death. Verse 20 through 23. 
when he's praying for these things, that he worked in Christ, that God worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated Jesus at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave Jesus his head over all things to the church, which his, is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And so this last little portion, it really mirrors that Philippians 2 passage that I quoted to you guys a few minutes ago of who Jesus is after he gave himself and humbled himself to the point of death on a cross for us. He was raised, right? This mirrors that same passage. So we worship a risen Savior. We worship a victorious King. See, Jesus Christ is risen and he is seated at the right hand of the Father. And when it says that he is above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name, both in this one and in the next, it's saying that Jesus Christ is above all of creation. And his authority is greater than any spiritual adversity that we will face from the enemy in this life. His name is above any and all name. He is above any and everything else. And he deserves our worship. And not only does he have authority over all things, which is a great and glorious truth, but even more specifically for us, he is head over the church. In Ephesians, it suggests this is for our good. It's spoken of as a gift to us. Look at the wording. It says, And God gave him Jesus as head over all things to the church. So in other words, God gave to the church, to us, Jesus as head over all things. And Jesus fills the church with his glorious presence through the Holy Spirit. And so this is just another tremendous gift that should, like the rest of chapter 1, fill us with a hope and a peace. I told you there was a lot here. So much is in this passage. So much of just knowing Jesus intimately more than service level, knowing him intimately. And not only knowing him, but also knowing this glorious hope that he has called us to. This is a robust passage. And you really need to spend some time this week diving in deeper. Don't take my word for it. If this is the last time you think about it, it wasn't that great, right? I want you to go deeper into this passage and spend time in it this week. So I find whenever I have the opportunity to preach that I can't wrap up a sermon without giving you some sort of, sort of application, right? I don't know what it is. I have to do it. Even if it's not a great application, I want to just give you some simple things to do as you wrap up your time in this passage today. And while there's lots of different potential steps that we could take next, I want to give you just two easy, simple steps. Well, somewhat simple. So the first one I want to give you, as I mentioned earlier, is that I want you to pray. I want you to pray. I want you to spend time praying not only for yourself and your family, the truth of this passage, and you should, but I also want you to pray for other believers in this church. If you're in a community group, if you check out the church app, the, the contact info, the names of everybody in your group is in there. You can pray for them by name. If you're not in a community group, Pick a few people you know in this church well and pray for them by name. But don't just pray in general. Pray through this passage for them. I think that's a beautiful picture and just an idea of what it would be like to have an entire congregation praying for one another to know their Savior at an intimate and deep level. I can't help but imagine that would give us a stronger sense of unity a bond of brotherly love and affection for one another, and something that the world can look at and think, I want that. I want a piece of that for myself. Because there's nothing more life-changing than knowing Jesus deeper and more intimately. As we're growing in our relationship with Him, we're being sanctified day by day. And so as we pray for this, as we pray that we know Jesus deeper, by knowing Him deeper, we're also going to in turn begin to love one another deeper as well. And that's just an amazing thing that can blow away the world around us. So pray for others outside of your family. Pray for people within this church. And then lastly, the second thing I want to give to you is I want to challenge you to meditate on this passage. Meditate on all of chapter one. Meditate on this passage. 
I know meditation is a really strange word we're not as familiar with, right? We think of somebody like sitting with their legs crossed and their eyes closed or maybe like some yoga, which I cannot do. I can't even touch my toes, guys. It's bad. But it's different than that kind of meditation. So what I want to read to you just real quick is an excerpt from one of my seminary professors. He wrote um, a book on spiritual disciplines. His name is Donald Whitney. And so he says of meditation, meditation is not folding your arms, leaning back in your chair, and staring at the ceiling. That's daydreaming, not meditation. As opposed to daydreaming, wherein you let your mind wander, with meditation you focus your thoughts. You give your attention to the verse, to the phrase, to the word or teaching of Scripture that you've chosen. Instead of mental aimlessness, in meditation your mind is on a track. It's going somewhere. It has direction. The direction your mind is taken is determined by the method that you choose. So my second challenge for us is that all of us spend a little time meditating on this passage this week. Of course, what does it mean to to meditate? How do you do it? Well, Donald Whitney gives 17 different ways of doing it. I'm going to cut that in half. I'm just going to give you eight. You don't have to do all of them. Pick one or two and keep it simple, guys. So he gives uh, 17 and give you eight. Um, so he says, formulate a principle from the text. It's supposed to be text, not test. Te- thinking of being a teacher. So what does this passage teach to you? So to simply go in and read it again and again and again and pray and ask, what is this passage teaching me? Number two, look for applications in the text. That's what we're doing right now. I'm giving you an application so you can look at any passage of Scripture and say, okay, what is this passage of Scripture telling me to do? Now, personally, I would challenge you to make the application piece last, because a lot of times we look at a scripture and we're like, okay, what do I do? Check it off. I'm done. And sometimes you miss the point. First, you've got to figure out what is it saying? What is it saying about Jesus? What is it saying about my sin? And how does Jesus meet that and overcome that? And then you get to the application piece. Number three, ask how the text points to either the law or the gospel. So either the law and how we fall short, or the gospel and how Jesus overcomes our sin. Number four, ask how the text points to something about Jesus. So Jesus himself says all scripture ultimately points to him. So you can look at any passage and say, okay, how is this pointing to Jesus in some way? Meditate on it. Think through that. Number five, a great thing to do with scripture is to pray through the text. If you're like me and you go to pray, you start daydreaming, you say, oh, I'm sorry, God, I forgot. And then you try to pray again and then you start daydreaming again, right? We all do it. We're very distracted, especially in our culture today. But a way to help alleviate some of that distractedness is to just pray through Scripture. Pray God's words back to Him. It's a powerful thing. And the more that you do it in your personal life, the more that when you pray with other people, Scripture is going to just drip into those prayers. And it's way more meaningful than your own words, trust me. Number six, memorize the text. This one's hard. It takes some effort. Before we jumped into Ephesians, I I jokingly challenged Jerry. I said, Jerry, you want to do something crazy? You want to memorize the entire book of Ephesians this year? And Jerry's like, well, I'm getting a little old. I'm like, yeah, whatever. You can do it. Um, So we're trying to do it. And I was doing better until my students came back to in-person learning. And then all my extra time to memorize has gone away, right? I used to walk around the room and memorize it. So I'm like, maybe through most of chapter one, but don't ask me to do it right now. But it's a glorious thing to meditate on scripture by memorizing it. Because as you're Whatever, however you do it, I would walk around my classroom, right, while the kids are doing their work virtually. I have my headphones in, and I could memorize Scripture while I'm doing it. And as I did that, things would jump out at me that I never saw before. So I would challenge you to maybe memorize through a portion of Scripture. Number seven, this one's tiny, and that's okay. If you want these, I'll, I'll email it to you. I'll send it out in the church if, weekly if you want. But he says you can ask the Philippians four eight questions of the text. So you look at Philippians 4.8, it says, you can ask, what is the truth about this text? Or what truth does it show? What is honorable about this text? What is just or right about this text? What is pure about this text? Or how does it show purity? What is lovely about this text? What is commendable about it? What is excellent about it? What is praiseworthy about it? So taking Philippians 4.8, you can go through and meditate on Scripture asking these questions. And finally, number eight, just like we do in our CBRs, find some minimum number of insights from the text. So don't read just to read, but meditate 
on the text. So those are my two application pieces for you guys. Spend some time praying this week. Make it a commitment. Put in your phone once a week. Pray for other people in this church. Pray through this scripture for them. Pray that they may know the truth of what we believe, who Jesus is and the hope that we have in him. And then also spend some time meditating on this passage this week. And if you really want to try really, really hard, I challenge you to memorize this, these nine verses this week. And if you can't memorize all nine, just memorize a small portion of it, right? Memorize the prayer that he prays, the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, that the eyes of our hearts may be enlightened, and that we may know the immeasurable hope, right? This immeasurable greatness of his power in Christ Jesus and towards those who hope in him, right? You can memorize just two or three verses this week. And I think if you spend some time meditating on God's word, it'll start to change everything for you. Let's pray. So Lord Jesus, I've given lots and lots of words. Most of it, thankfully, was your word itself. And so whenever we, we take in all this information and go through a passage like this and try to wrap our minds around it, it's hard to understand it at a deep level in just 40 minutes together. And so I pray this week that you'll challenge us, that you'll help us through your spirit to pray, to pray for one another, to meditate on your word. And I pray most of all that your Holy Spirit will give us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of Jesus Christ to know our Lord and Savior deeply, to know him intimately, more intimate than we can know any other person in this world. It is only you that can give us a desire to know you intimately, and it is only you that can help us to know you intimately, Lord. So we pray this. We desperately pray this to you, God. We don't want to spend our lives never knowing you deeper. We don't want to get to the end, never having made it a point to focus on you and to know you, Lord. So help that to not be true of us. Help us to know you, Lord. And help us to not only know you, but also to know at a deep foundational level the hope that you have called us to, the glorious hope of our inheritance in Jesus Christ and the glorious hope of his inheritance of a people that you have given to him, a people that can never be taken away. Thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it is powerful and able to penetrate our hearts and our minds, even to soul. So help us to know the truth of your word. Help us to spend time in it this week. And may it change us. And help us as we head into Easter to meditate on what it means of the resurrection of Jesus. Not only his death on the cross, but also his resurrection and how the resurrection of Jesus Christ literally changes everything. We thank you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.